Welcome to the Weekly Notebook Review. I am Robert McGrorty. This podcast takes on a bit of a different format where we are live each week on Twitter Spaces. I crack open my notebook and review Hedgeye research with anyone who wants to learn a better way to invest. We feature both Hedgeye power users as well as some special guests that might pop in. If you want to learn more about our research, visit Hedgeye.com. If you'd like to participate in the live stream, follow me on Twitter at HedgeyeRJM. Now, let's review the data. Good afternoon. We've got another episode of Hedgeye and Friends. This one with a return guest, aka the one, the only Mike Taylor. I just pinged him, so um, we'll just give it a minute or two for him to come join. I'm sure he will be here any second. But with that, uh, pretty interesting time out there in the market. A lot of little. A little quad four action certainly is transpiring. A little, a little, uh, you know, as a, a, we got I'm a little, you know, just, uh, just casual things are happening out there. Banks are going kaput. Got the Fed bailing out. Trent Wizzo invited you up to co host. How you doing, bud? Hey, hey, hey. Yes, definitely quad four action. The quad four team, yeah. <laughs> That's right. XLP, XLV, right? And uh rest of the yeah, I mean, aspects. Yeah, I mean if you look at the basket today, uh you know, the quad four basket was up uh one point one two percent um versus everything else. Well I guess quad three was about eighty five basis points, so that would have been your your closest, but that's mainly because of the gold and TL and the TLT and tips kind of type of position. Um but right. uh you know, and Q's was obviously performed well as well, but yeah, some serious outperformance on the uh, quad four basket, which is always a good thing. Well, it's a good thing when you're positioned for it, right? <laughs> yeah. And at some point of time, you know, it would be good to reconcile around some, some of this intermittent kind of tech kind of performance too, uh, over a period of time. So, you know, today's day is just one day and one day is not a trend, right? So we have to, take that into account but at some point of time it would be good to reconcile this uh, tech bullishness as well while of course financials just completely fell off the cliff yeah trend and, and that goes back to you know sometimes you know I, well it goes back to the fact that every quad is different right and uh and you know sometimes you may have things that typically backed us poorly that might slightly you know on a relative basis kind of you know outperform right but at this and 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 it doesn't mean that it will in perpetuity or throughout all of quad four but certainly signals are uh sorry the the financials and and tech remains bearish trend right but it's in terms of yeah i think you're referring to more about relative outperformance at the moment and um that's certainly kind of what you what you saw today right and and i think a big piece of that is certainly if you're looking at xlk trend is that it is the makeup of you know Apple and Microsoft in there, and yep. and so if you're kind of looking for you know those are two big behemoths that that traditionally would be kind of a quote unquote safe haven in terms of kind of you know has uh, performed well over the last certainly last ten fifteen years and uh, and again you know just a place where if you're going to have to part rotate capital from a you know large cap big sexy seven standpoint uh that rotation certainly would make sense i mean if you look at kind of the sexy seven and how they did 
uh, it was Microsoft, then Amazon and Apple in terms of your top three and, and Microsoft and Apple, you know, Microsoft was a little over 2%. Amazon was one, almost 1.9%, 1.87 and Apple's like one and a third. So again, you know, that, that rotation makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of like a quote unquote flight safety and, and a risk off environment. Um, and so, so I think, yeah, but you're, you're spot on in terms of, you know, keeping a keen eye on, on the tech sector and, and, you know, what that looks like. Cause I think it's less about today's move and, and more about where do things play out by the end of the week type thing. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Um, sorry. So we can invite uh, other folks uh, on here while we wait for. Yeah. Mike, so I invited, uh, I invited Rich, I see Rich far, uh, I see Rich far out in the, in the crowd. So I, I um, had asked him, I guess over the weekend, I think it was maybe it might've been late Friday, Friday. Um, if you wanted to participate, so Rich, I've, I've invited you up to speak, but um, we'd love to kind of hear uh, your thoughts on on what's transpiring out there, and obviously anybody else uh, who's intimate in the space. Uh, Mike Taylor just texted me that he'd be here in just just a minute, so uh, so that will be transpiring. So we'll get we'll get the the big guy, which is really why <laughs> mainly why people are tuning in today is to hear kind of Mike Taylor. I just give you a little background. Uh, so we Mike Taylor's been. Uh, a, a good friend of the of the program, both at Hedgeye and, and certainly of of mine here through other weekly notebook reviews or these Hedgeye and friends, and so we've we've been lucky enough to kind of have a playbook and and hear Mike's thoughts. And Mike, thanks for joining. We, we've been lucky enough to be hearing your thoughts throughout both uh, quad quad you know tail end of kind of quad two environment, uh, and and then and then going into kind of quad fours. And most recently, I think it was May of 22, we had a call, which was really what I highlighted in terms of, or, you know, Brian, Muni guy was kind of enough to kind of write up those notes and kind of lay out the, the time frame or the different kind of boxes to check in, in, in terms of the breakdown that could be happening on the horizon. We're, we're, we're now, um, what, about eight, nine months in, <laughs> Mike, and we've got, we've got one of the things uh, on the horizon here, which would be sort of earnings recession. And that's certainly a big component in terms of the hedge eye, uh, you know, playbook. Where that's the next sort of shoot a drop in our in our mind would be the earnings recession. We've we've certainly uh, moved kind of past a bit of the in inflation. Uh, now I know you're in the camp that uh, food inflation uh, is certainly not not done is not sort of over with. But uh, but welcome, Mike. Always a pleasure to to have you on, and and I appreciate it. We had uh, Mike. It was funny. I was going back, but and it was quite quite amusing that we ended up actually having an impromptu session uh, the the on February second, which was the night the, the day the market peaked, uh, right in terms of the bear market rally, and that's the night that we had uh, that gentleman pop on and said S and P to six thousand, I believe the number was, which all made us all kind of chuckle. Well, he had he had yeah, great he had a great basis for that. He 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 uh, felt that way. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah but mike i mean how you doing man first of all good uh, i apologize i'm a little tardy today i'm a little bit off my game i had a little bit of neck surgery today so oh nothing big okay, nothing oh, big wow. just a bunch of needles yeah. you know i mean you know of course yeah <laughs> so i know uh are you feeling all right yeah i'm good i'm good well good so uh well, thanks so this is um God, this is so. What what is what has happened here? Look, we know that there's a duration mismatch. For all of you know, there's a 
by the way, for all the listeners, there's a banking problem. And, uh, and there's a duration mismatch between deposits and what they bought. And that's always the case. We just haven't had an inverted yield curve that has lasted for over a year to this kind of degree like this. And as banks get redemptions on their deposits, um, they can run into a problem because they have to start selling their mostly mortgage-backed securities at a loss. And you have a lot of leverage involved here because uh, it's a bank. And so very small losses as a percent of your book can equal the entire equity of your bank very quickly. And that, that's what started. But I, I actually didn't view that as the problem. Uh, the problem, and many of the bank people out there, and you've heard me talk about it uh, for the past year, is commercial real estate is the problem. And so, so many of the banks that I were, was looking at, I really was thinking that the blowups are going to start in the 2Q as they're reporting uh, the busted commercial real estate investments they made, you know, with clients. Uh, because essentially everything that was done over the past three years, or a lot of it is underwater. Uh, where it was so bad that they're just going to give the keys back. And so we haven't even seen that happen yet. And that's coming in the 2Q representing 1Q, uh, meaning the 1Q results coming in 2Q and then beyond, because this will probably be a multi-year event. And this is what I thought was going to really wreck the banks, uh, especially small regional ones. And I have a whole list. Uh, and and I, I'll tell you, I'm short like 5%. That's it. And I'm so mad at myself because... You know, this whole thing happened over two days. And I was like, damn it, I was teeing up for a big bank mess next quarter, not now. And um, I uh, believe it or not, I did not see this coming to this degree and this sort of contagion. So it is true. I don't get them all. Um, oh, you have Rich Farr on the line. Oh, Rich is a speaker. Very good. Rich Farr is a good friend of mine. If you guys I am know. here. I am here. My neck is working very well today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you, it better because you've got to have a swivel head you know, to survive. This hey, Mike, Mike, talk yeah. about kicking yourself, right? I came to a realization a few days ago. So we've been we've been writing a lot about the the blowhole in the side of the Fed's balance sheet. And, you know, we've done work on the duration. We've pulled the, you know, the Fed. Um, Fed's done its own research, talking about over a trillion dollars in losses. And we have written about this. And we've been now, now for your listeners, this is the crap that they bought over the past several years. Yes. That in the event that they have to sell it and not hold to through duration, uh, then they would have to take marks, which they're not so doing. Right. That's why so they're the rolling Fed, everything off at maturation so they don't take Correct. Marks. So everything we focused on was the Fed's taking losses. They can't sell the bonds. And because they can't sell the bonds, there's too much cash in the system. Too much cash in the system means inflation lasts longer than people want. It's more persistent, right? And it hit us, I want to say, sometime around the close on Thursday as we're seeing that the Silicon Bank deal was probably not going to go off, this light bulb went off. Holy shit. The banks are all positioned exactly like the Federal Reserve. 
and yet they can't hold the shit to maturity. Well, they don't have that discretion. <laughs> when people want their money back, that's I've it. been staring at the most obvious elephant in the room for months and months and months, and it did not hit me until they couldn't get the Silicon Bank deal off. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> they have the same book on. So, Rich, so this is what I was thinking. It starts with commercial real estate, and you'll see the building permits, like, implode. Yeah. And I think we have a really, really smart real estate guy on this call right now because he just started texting me. I'm not going to say his name, but if he wants to jump on too, raise your hand. And you know who you are. Um, anyway, so I thought that it would be commercial real estate. And, uh, and then uh, building permits uh, crater, which they've already started to roll. And then right after that, the jobless claims lift. And as soon as the jobless claims lift, people are going to have to start pulling deposits. And then we get the banking disaster on the mark-to-market issue. Right. And Mark, uh, Mike, you were referring to the credit risk of the house, right? Not this uh, ALM or asset liability mismatch side of the house. No, no. I was thinking asset liability mismatch. Okay. Uh, As people lose their jobs, they start pulling their savings using it. And uh, and then we have deposits drop. Anyway, I didn't know how exactly it was going to work. But what I do know for the past year is that when you have an inverted yield curve and quantitative tightening, the probability of something going wrong, well, it's 100%. I just didn't know exactly where. And, and the shocking, well, if you will, the shocking thing to a degree is that, uh, and now you know it and you saw it here, when financials blow up, you buy Tesla. <laughs> so, because that, that's like what literally happened. And you're like, okay, well, I've seen this before. And this is, this is before the redemptions come, which is very soon. Uh, the, the vanilla guys, um, you know, the, the, basically the active managers are like, we can't own fins, sell the fins. And so they're cashing up. So what do they do? They buy everything that's not down. And today they bought pharma, tech, staples, staples, and yeah. and you know and I'm I, I just I don't understand like you know but that's okay this is what they do this is what they do until people say I want my money back and and we're probably getting closer and closer to that I want my I need my money back we're in the I need my money back for wealthy people right now and that is because the wealthy people. You know, people with $5 million plus uh, accounts. So this is like high net worth uh, clients at Goldman Sachs. And I think $5 million is the minimum. They recently dropped it from $10 million. And, and they, they are invested in frequently uh, real estate projects. And a lot, so many of these are underwater. Well, Especially if you were not a savvy real estate person. Uh, meaning where you're you're buying it through a fund into an entity that has shiny paper and a pitch book and all that stuff. Those are the kind of things that we're doing three years ago, two years ago, projects with a cap rate of like five. Well, my- and now when they have to refinance it for long-term paper after they did built the project or they improved the project, you know, get the clients in, the tenants in, and then, they refi it right now. That refi is nine. 
and the the whole thing doesn't work. And so you have to either lose everything and give it back to the bank, or you have to put more capital in to run it at a loss until some date in the future. And that's what I'm seeing. I, I started seeing it last year with a number of my friends having ma- major uh, anchor investors that got in trouble with real estate, pulling their money out of hedge funds, you know, calling them up and saying, I need my anchor amount in your hedge fund in 48 hours. Now, they can't get that, but it was a panic attack uh, when these things came about. And it's not just one, it's many. And hey, Mike, just uh, just to expand on that, just for those listening in that may not fully understand what an anchor amount means, could you just um, elaborate on what that terminology means? Well, an anchor in a hedge fund is usually is considered a big investor in your hedge fund. Frequently, an anchor investor will be someone there who's there from the start, right? And and it's it's frequently ten percent of your entire fund, sometimes more. And that's kind of why I wanted you to expand on that because yeah. it's not just so. Uh, so it's, it's not just really a small player. It's not guys who hasn't been with. So like when they make that phone call, it's like not necessarily last resort, but it means like okay, they're really evaluating their entire book. But when they're saying, I need it in 48 hours, yeah. and you're going to do that, um, that's like, that's a huge ask because you have to get the, you know, the, the whole company to basically eat shit and do it at an executive level. They have the right to hold that till, uh, and not return the money until June. So why would you do it now? And so all these guys are needing this cash immediately. And we saw this with collateral, uh, problems with collateral at the end, of, in the back half of last year, where the collateral uh, at hedge funds, I, I had heard of many cases of it being marked at zero. So imagine you have $10 million at a hedge fund. You can borrow against that at, uh, at uh, many New York banks, some of which in great trouble right now. You could borrow against that hedge fund and post it as collateral and get 30, 40% of the equity out of that to use in a real estate project. And uh, in the back half of last year, uh, many of these said, no, 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 now it's worth zero. So you have to come up with more collateral. And that's uh, so that's what we're kind of in full swing on now. And then you say, well, why are we having a collateral problem? And it's really simple. We have an inverted yield curve. That's why. That's why we Mike, have a collateral getting, problem. Collateral is worth Mike, less. you're getting into something that I don't think was fully vetted last week. Why were people pulling their money out of Silicon Bank all of a sudden? You know, and you can make the argument, well, you're going to go out and buy, you know, six-month treasuries, two-year treasuries, get a much better yield. All right, that makes sense, except they could have done that for two years straight, Basically. for two years straight. Yeah. So I why mean, all of a sudden? Rich, last time you were on, last time you, you were on here with me, at least it was, you know, I believe the fall, and we were, you know, the the we were having a similar conversation about how attractive the yields were, right? And like, and yet they could still go higher, but they were still a very attractive, you know, place to park capital. Why all of a sudden? Why all of a sudden did everyone need to take their money out and i know you know all the backstories of sequoia and you know peter teal but you know there something else is going on and so you know you got into so 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 one just hey you know i agree with all you guys but the thing i'm watching which i think confirms what you're saying uh richard is and i'm not an expert in these areas but if you watch you know euro dollar futures and you look at credit default swaps they're exploding and then mike's mentioned a couple times the all the inversions 
the world is hedging for a freaking catastrophe. And I don't, I'm not smart enough to know where in the hell it's going to happen. But I mean, just look at those things. And um, hell, SVB had the collateral. They had the mismatch, obviously. Why aren't the big banks who are loaded up with cash, like the JP Morgans and whatnot, why aren't they loaning money? I think there's a big, big global interbank workings that with all this hedging going on is is out there and i don't i'm not smart enough to know what it is but i can tell you what it's well, not that far well I, right. so hang on now i actually so think it's you, the demand before you jumped in let richard's uh, finish oh his yeah talk. i'm sorry so richard, back to you richard it, it's arthur i think arthur was saying something there uh, uh, uh richard i, I, I think could, you yeah, were I finishing would, yeah. a point you asked a yeah, question yeah, no, guess, and then i think you're building well, up I, to a point uh before you, Arthur jumped so, in. sorry i've already forgotten what i was gonna say <laughs> but uh no no i think the point is and i think arthur was getting to that is you know all of a sudden out in palo alto people needed money and it, you can't tell me it was just yield differential because they had that opportunity for two years almost Something else changed. And there's things going on that we, we don't, you know, like Arthur's saying, we don't have the information. You know, you know, Mike, you have talked a lot about that Blackstone REIT and how they walled off, you know. There's private equity in VC issues of things, you know, non-correlated things that haven't been priced in a very long time. And the only way you find out the price is if you go to sell. So I think there's a lot of money frozen in a lot of places. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, we're hearing a Silicon Bank has little issues and they take it from there. And I could tell you just an anecdote, you know, on the consumer. So I, I got a buddy who's pretty, you know, pretty high up in a uh, regional mortgage broker, private regional mortgage broker. And I like to talk to him every now and then about what he'd see. He called this whole thing. He called the whole thing. He said, listen, Rich, there's markets are going to be down 25, 30, 35% because of what's happening in interest rates. You're going to see 7.5% more. This guy called the whole friggin' thing. So I said, to, I said to him now, I said, recently, I said, uh, what's the latest? He goes, I'm going to tell you the latest. People are refinancing their homes at 7.5% where they were otherwise 4 or 5%. They are refinancing at a higher rate. I said, what kind of stupidity is that? And he goes, well, they have 21% credit cards. And I was like, oh. So all this phantom equity that everyone thinks is out there, there's so much household net worth that's sitting in homes and all that stuff that the Fed gave. The Fed could take away as fast as it gave it. And you're starting to see that now. And given that some of these homes haven't priced yet, people are able to get the equity out. So I don't know. I feel like there is a cash call out there, you know, and, and you got the Credit Suisse stuff going on. Like, I, Arthur. Yeah, yeah I Rich, Rich that's a good call. Out in terms yeah. of, I mean, the, the housing price lag, right, yeah. Rich, in, in terms of, I think is what you're yeah. getting. Because we've seen, you know, from an inflationary standpoint, we've seen commodities obviously have moved lower, generally speaking, right? Like, you know, oil is, oil is a huge component of that. You know, it's down um, significantly off of its sort of uh, <clears throat> summer highs. And you've seen a lot of that that piece of the inflation aspect inside the, of of the number kind of move lower, but the the last piece and one that was like the biggest laggard on the way up <clears throat> is going to be the biggest laggard on the way down too. Uh, which, Rich, is what you're referring to, which is housing prices and and the fact that 
you know, inventory isn't necessarily, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty sluggish right now, right? Like, like things are transacting and you're seeing, uh, you're seeing that happen through the, you know, I think, uh, Mike, you were just talking about the MBS data, right? Like that, that's going to come out in the next couple two weeks, I think it is. Right. Um, and what that, that well, I'm, I'm really looking at per- building permits, building permits. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Building, but per- I think, but I think the price component, right, Rich, is a huge piece, right? Because right now it's still relatively artificially. Uh, On elevated. paper, households look as wealthy as they've ever been. You've got a huge yeah. surge in exactly. home values, huge surge. But what you can get on paper and what you can get in the market are two totally different things, and it speaks to why all of a sudden you would see, you know, an increase in cash out refi or home refinancings at higher rates because people are looking for the cash. Or at least to get like access to, uh, you know, some of that. Right. Right. Cause it's the last, it's the last piece of their portfolio that still has that, you know, price action still in it. <laughs> yeah. Mike, Mike and I talk a lot and I know, I know exactly where he's going with the building permits and he and I have similar contacts and uh, you know, I, Mike, I think I shared this with you, but maybe I didn't. Right around the end of the year, I happened to be having dinner next to a contractor, local contractor. And, you know, I, I'm always tuned into stuff like that. He's like a public contractor. I said, you know, how's, how's business going? I said, it's all right. You know, I said, what about backlogs? He said, oh, yeah, I still got, you know, two or three months of backlog. I said, okay, that's good. He goes, well, not really. I said, why, why isn't two or three months of backlog good? He goes, well, because of the stuff coming down the pike. I said, what's coming down the pike? He goes, he goes, larger contractors are underbidding on jobs where they will literally lose cash flow. I said, why would anyone bid a losing price on a, on a job? He goes, because it keeps their workers working. Mm. Because if you're a larger contractor and you have five or six jobs going on and you need, you know, Joey to, you know, stay on the payroll because he's got all these other things, you might be willing to take a loss on one project in order to keep everyone moving and everyone doing things. He goes, I cannot do that. I'm a smaller player. I need to make money on a job that I've been on. He goes, so two to three months from now, when my backlog dries up, I may be firing people, which by the way is right now. It would be right now. As building permits yeah. roll. Right now. Yeah. So I want to pivot yeah, so back Ma- to Mike real quick about this. Yeah. Subject. Yeah. So Rob, go ahead. No, I was just going to, so Mike, can you, can you just kind of keep going down that building permits uh, in the, in one of the, you know, one or multiple reasons where you're really kind of focusing on that and how that might snowball into other components? Well, historically building permits rolling are an incredibly like a 100% correlation front runner to jobless claims lifting. <clears throat> And and that's what I think we're looking at, a very classical inverted yield curve credit problem uh, economic cycle. And, and, and you know, the, the battle that's been going on right now in stocks and why it's been so difficult is because we have full employment. And so full employment, people don't default on anything, even though auto loan defaults are at an all-time high. So <clears throat> we still... Overall, the mindset is that they don't they don't default on anything. They keep buying their iPhones and stuff like that. Uh, but you know that bet is completely off when jobless claims lift. 
and that's fine. But when I look at the over under here, if you're going to be long, your bet is things are going to get gooder. And and that's a word, by the way. So if things are going to get gooder, how the hell are jobless claims going to go lower? Like when you're at full employment and the Fed is trying to kill it, like bet bet with bet that way, you know, that you have nine, 95% chance things are going to get worse and a 5% chance things are going to get better. Yet the entire market is betting things are going to get better. And so I, you know, and that's how I looked at it coming into this year and why I really wanted to sound the bell immediately in January for everyone to take note. We have a huge problem coming and you really should be long the two year. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy Rich has come on to my side that the two year, you know, the argument on being long the two year treasury in size is that within the next year, we are going to be in recessionary conditions and it will become incredibly obvious that the Fed is going to have to cut. And then that two year is going to go from um, a probably, you know, where it got to about four point nine percent and it will go to one or less. And that's really my bet. And it was the only thing I could come out with that was probably an incredibly high probability gain uh, over the next year with a very low risk to loss. Uh, the only other risk is, is that the Fed continues to hike rates and the economy doesn't implode throughout the year. And I just, I, I, given the given all the charts, and I'll draw your attention to um Gunlock's presentation, Just Markets, it's called, in January. He does it once a year. And he pulls out charts, very similar charts that I look at. And he has, I've been watching him for over 20 years. He's never wrong at nailing a recession. And he was saying, well, okay, about the middle of this year, yep, that's where we'll be. And, you know, these charts are slow moving. And they, they move over five-year periods. And just like uh, recessions happen over long periods of time. And we're here. So so that was really my bet with the two-year. And that's what I, that's really, my, it's actually my biggest position. My biggest long is the two-year. Unfortunately, the rest of my book isn't good, but that is. <laughs> so. so, Mike, uh, I know that last time you mentioned that uh, uh, from a standpoint of tactical positioning, right, uh, having a, a negative beta position or having a net short position kind of helps. Yeah. Uh, is this sell-off, especially in the last four trading sessions, good enough for taking some uh, chips off the table or wait and hold on till that actual recession hits in the middle of the year? Well, I look at it. It's a great question. Thank you, Wiz. Um, the, I, I've thought of it. Do I want to trade it? And not really. No, I don't. I got bigger near the bottom. I got bigger as soon as this started. And I came in quite sized into January. And I was wrong for about 8%. And that's okay. Because I said, well, my downside is I lose 10%. My upside is the way I have it structured, I could make 50 to 150% return, depending on how interest rates go. And so I'm like, that's you know, whenever you have a 90% chance of a trade working and a 10% downside, if you're wrong, you got to go size, super size. Uh, even if you're wrong for a few months, which I was, I was wrong for, I don't know, two and a half, three months. So um, that's, I'd love to thread it and I'd love to be able to take the chips off, but 
we haven't even seen all the, we just got the prelude of what's coming. And in my view, and the next thing, once jobless claims start to lift, and I really don't see how they don't, um, you know, that's, that's it. It doesn't just stop and go away. We get into a real economic down cycle and these things take, if we're lucky, a year to play out. If this is like 2001, it's two years to play out. And honestly, on the other side, remember, if the Fed does engage in quantitative easing again at some point in the next. Oh, by the way, how I have this, I have it on a rolling two year. So I'm long the two year, but I'm long the two year every month. So it's not like I'm letting it mature so that it becomes a one year in one year. I am just long the two year and it repeats and renews about every month. Right. And as Gunluck says that, you know, two year goes wherever the near term Fed funds rate go, right? Yeah. Well, the two year just started literally in the past three days of trading. Yeah. I mean, it's still at four percent. Oh, we have a huge problem. Yeah. So. I mean, basically, I mean, in the last three days, Mike, I mean, it cut 100 base, well, 100 basis points, basically, from uh, from what had been what they'd been baking in in terms of like uh, terminal rate being 5 percent. Right. So now we're down to back to four, which was kind of this is generally the level we were at for the, you know, from September of 2022 to the start of 23 is generally this this level of four-ish percent. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not even yeah, again. Yeah. So it's kinda right now they're they're pricing in kind of unchanged for twenty three. But the question and the reason why you're rolling it for two years is mainly because you're expect I mean again, expecting or your the probability of them easing is become increases as recession risk increases. And I, I really think it's a probability of them being forced. Forced. That's all. And that, look, we're going to be comping a lot of this inflation. So inflation is going to go down uh, materially. And and so, you know, quote unquote, mission accomplished. But what, what's really going to happen that triggers a problem is li- jobless claims lifting. So and and I just. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> So, and look, we, we had over the past three years, a lot of wackadoodle ideas get funded and that's a lot of jobs that need to, uh, be reduced. The thing, I mean, think about it. I mean, just look at the auto market, you know, this is a commodity item, automobiles, and they were trading at $10,000 above their quoted price at the dealer. Yeah, the quoted MSRP, right? The maximum suggestion. By the way, they make up that freaking number. So that's not actually what costs them. It's just the fucking number they put on a piece of paper and say that's the price. And it's (laughs) going for $10,000 over it. Okay, so it came down. Then it was eight. And now it's like four or five. And and an auto loan is, you know, what? 8% if you have good credit. So... 
you know, and then the argument is, is that, well, no, they have to buy the cars. It doesn't matter because they haven't been buying enough cars for a couple of years. And my argument back is, well, I understand that argument, but you're not going to buy that car because you can't afford it until you absolutely have to. And it's a disposable. I mean, it's it's a necessary item, but. You know, you can keep a used car running for an awful long time. You know, Mike. Yeah, but so, uh, sorry, yeah, I was, sorry. I was just gonna say these things. You know, it's it's a slow moving freight train when the economy turns. And yet, if you look at street estimates, the top down folks are still earnings growing eleven percent this year. The bottom up of a of a couple percent growth. Nobody's out there saying earnings are going to be down ten to fifteen percent this year. And you have to figure that's the next thing. And I think that's the hardest part about this market right now is typically when we reach this point where banks are blowing up and the Fed's bailing everybody out, stocks are in the toilet. And we're not there. We're not there. You're still 19 times earnings, 18, 19 times earnings. And the earnings number may not be the same earnings number. And, you know, when I think about the stuff you're talking about with job loss, which I really do think is coming, I think about all the passive flows and where all the passive flows have been going. The Vanguard total market index and the spiders and ARC, you know, all these things. And it just seems to me that we already know people needed their money out of Silicon Bank. We already know people can't get their money out of VC and private equity. We already know consumers are hitting their house to refinance credit cards. What's the next thing? It's take your money. You're asking what's the next source of liquidity, right? Yes. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be a tighter belt. And also money out of the stock market. That too. I still think multiples yeah. are coming down and earnings are coming down. I just don't see how, you know, I don't, I don't see what the other, how you solve for anything other than that. But rich interest rates just went down. So we're going to have a housing boom. There's massive pent up demand as far as the eye can see. I don't understand where that's coming from, but that's so I, have, I have a problem with this analogy analogy. And I'll, and I'll tell you why there's a, there's a fed study on, the number of homes per person. And it, it's like one of the highest levels we've ever seen, like 08. And like, how, you say to yourself, how's this possible? I thought there's no housing inventory. Well, you've had kind of a change in the, in the housing industry in that you have had these Airbnbs and rental. Everybody thinks they're an Airbnb owner now. Everybody thinks that, you know, and I had some experience in this market and not only does everyone think there's going to be an Airbnb boom, but there's also a lot of shadow banking funding it. And that's the part that you just don't know yet. You know, there was a, there's a company down, I think it's uh, in Austin, Vizium or something like that. And I had Vizio, that's them. I had a call with them. Yeah. Uh, I used them, by the yeah. way. Yeah, for my Airbnb. So, so I, I had a call. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Good, good for you. I had a call with them. And uh, <laughs> when did you talk uh, to him, by the way? Uh, 
Okay, you should talk to them now. They'd love to have a phone yeah. call, but it's the only phone <laughs> call. I'm not kidding. So I, I had to go shopping for a property in Texas. My daughter's going to the University of Texas. I wanted to, uh, you know, make her a Texas resident. So I go down there in this hottest, one of the hottest markets in the country. I talk to the Vizio people. I talk to the lenders down there. And uh, the Vizio one was fascinating. Because, you know, I was asking, you know, I want to finance a rental property or whatever. And uh, I was, they were like, well, we don't need your W-2s. We don't need your K-1s. That's right. We don't need any of this stuff. That's like, right. Well, what the hell do you need? Well, we need your Airbnb revenues. Well, what if I haven't rented it out yet? Well, we're going to project what the Airbnb revenues are going to be. Oh, so you just know. You, you somehow magically know what I'm going to rent this property out for. So it's all based off of you know, subjective numbers that have never seen a recession. So that was one thing. Then, I, you know, I talked to some of the conventional lenders. Did they tell you you have a five-year lockup on refi oh. and they'll charge you five, four, three, two, one, even, you know, percent premium? Didn't even get there. That, so that's even more interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're doing. I'll tell you, after you talk, I'll tell you the deal that I just did probably this week. So I talked to the conventional lenders down there and, you know, uh, the realtors down there are really pushing you to buy in Austin. You got to buy in Austin. It's the hottest market. It's up X percent every year. You got to buy. You got to buy. So, you know, so I like looking at some Austin properties. I, I, and, you know, we put a bid on a place and uh, I'm like, uh, hey, what's going on with the mortgage? Oh, uh, well, we laid off all our uh, mortgage processors. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah, so that's the whole that's the hold up there. Right? So when we when we found out that uh, I was like, okay, this is a great opportunity to just walk away from this freaking mess. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, a little, maybe a little less headache paying out of, out of state tuition. Eh, yeah. We all did, ultimately what I did is I got away from Austin. I went out. I went out to College Station, found a place with a older lady in there. She's yeah. a four year renter. I'm like, all right, you know, you're not going to get hosed like you're going to get hosed in austin here but uh but you know i got a lot i learned a lot real quickly about one of the hottest markets in the country even that market was turning into bullshit and so you know i I have a, a i highly doubt that all of a sudden all these people were suddenly you know wanting to buy homes in the united states there were no homes for them the Fed printed money. It didn't print print uh, human beings. Okay, there's there's only so much population growth, and what I think has happened is there's a significant amount of homes that are actually not being lived in as a primary home now. They're being Airbnb properties in some communities. Austin's one, but you know there's like Naples, Florida, there's other ones where you'll have like housing developments for ten to fifteen percent of the units or Airbnb, and you may go, well, that's not that much. Well, if they're the marginal change in price, they're going to set the mark for everybody else. If your neighbors can't rent their Airbnb out, then the, the value of that price is, go, is going to go down, and that's going to hurt your property value. And what's interesting about that, um, the Super Bowl was just in Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. and so was the, the Phoenix PGA Open at the exact same time. And they interviewed some guy there. He's a, an Airbnb, uh, uh, you know, guy, and he had like 95 properties. 
And he said, I've been slashing price on my properties for this Super Bowl weekend. And still, 50% of my properties are not rented. 50. As you tell, I can see it. So, Rich, I just rented an Airbnb for uh, a race I have coming up in two weeks. And the Airbnb rental was half the price of a hotel. Well, there you go. Yeah. That hasn't ha- and that, that, that hasn't happened in a while. Like the premiums had been on the Airbnb side. I think I'm renting a house for a hundred dollars a night. Wow. Where are where does that generally like what, what area Oh, there? this is in Shitsville. This is in Sebring, <laughs> Florida. Sebring, Florida. Uh, it's like Shitsville. They, it, it's it's really I didn't even know I didn't even know these places existed in Florida. I mean, but it's like literally cattle country in the middle of Florida. And the, you can get alligator any way you want it. They got it fried, they have it grilled. You know, any way you want. It tastes like chicken. And the alligators are thinking the same thing about you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, it's it's, it's a rough and tumble country out there. But I'm absolutely going to look at it because I'm on the road a lot, as many of you know, uh, racing. And um, and so I, I'm going to start doing these Airbnbs because um, the hotels are um, pretty reasonable. But if I can find Airbnbs at half the price done so yeah so so this kind of dovetails a little bit in something and i want to get back to a topic that we were uh, reviewing uh probably 20 minutes ago at this point but more on the liquidity front right and uh you know this tails into exactly what rich i mean this is good you know, it was a great topic there on the airbnb side right in terms of you know housing liquidity and and what might transpire when the capital call like so quote quote capital calls are, are really needed or, or people are, are in the market that do own 30, to your point, 93 Airbnbs in the Phoenix area. And, you know, he's trying to get, you know, that you know, person's trying to get liquidity out of the market. So can you talk both just on a small scale, Mike, or how are you thinking about like liquidity generally, I guess, in terms of the flows both in the global markets as well as on a consumer level? Oh, my God. I know that's a big, broad topic, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, what bothers, it's always like, remember, we always talk about the shoes that drop and the shoes that have to drop. We have the delinquency in autos very, very high right now. We have the price of cars for some reason, very, very high right now. I mean, I understand there's a supply and demand issue. And then we have financing of that very, very high right now. Financing of everything, very, very expensive right now. And then we've seen the uh, transaction volumes of uh, homes uh, crater, just completely crater uh, all over the world. Uh, But let's just say here. So uh, I think that we're seeing the belt tightening. And I think that you're going to see it next, like immediately in the lower end casual dining Applebee's, stuff like that. I think casual is going to get wrecked. Uh, my consumer guys told me it's already started to move. So, and, and this is very immediate. And one thing that I, I really didn't understand until the past three years, because as you know, I, 
I really focused in on healthcare um, of course. for for most of my time, and I I I, I didn't. And, and we lived in a bubble. You live in a bubble, by the way, Rich. You live in a bubble. Well, maybe not where you live, but because you live in like real country with you know reg, real people. But I, I lived in a New York City bubble for twenty plus years, and I had no idea that the vast majority of people simply spend every dime that they have all the time. And when they don't have money, that's when they stop going out to eat. There's a study, and, there's a study, Mike, that even six-figure households are paycheck to paycheck now. And when you start looking at the childcare costs and things like that, it actually makes sense. It makes sense. I saw that saying. I saw that too, Rachel. I think I saw that. Uh, I thought like a, last week, maybe maybe ten days ago. It was within the last ten days. I, I, yeah, it was staggering the number, Rich. It was. I think again, I got to go find that tweet, but but um, or like the the article, but it was a pretty high number. I want to say like two forty, two hundred, like it was two hundred forty thousand household or something like that. It was a it was a pretty high number, um, or like both parents making over a hundred thousand, something like that. It was like quite a yeah, and, they, and it was still it was like fifty percent or, or or some of the households were paycheck to paycheck. It, it was not good. Yeah. So you, you get the razor's edge that everyone's on. Hey, guys, I got I got to jump, but I uh, just was happy to uh, join for a little bit there. No, thank yeah. you. Rich, I'll, I'm coming to your dinner. All right. Can't All right. See you, man. <laughs> and wait. Uh, okay, you thank you. Care. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Farr. The one and the only. Hey, Trent, was there any on the liquidity front? Where like You've been doing a lot of work on, on the bank side of things lately. Yeah, and and so where if we kind of tie it back to what's obviously huge headlines of the last week in return in regards to the on the banking side of things, what what kind of analysis have you done in terms of liquidity? Both yeah, just like liquidity with oh, banks. actually, my sense of asking Mike about liquidity was remember in January how he described oh, the, the treasury, the TGA, yeah, TGA and the Fed and all of that. Now, given that we are running into a debt ceiling, um, eventually I mean, there'll be some resolution, right? Like either it could be uh, on the side that, hey, we're hiking it or no, we're yeah. not hiking it. We get a 10 person fall in the S&B and then we again fix it or whatever. So uh, thinking of those scenarios, right, uh, as well as the global net liquidity with PBOC, BOJ, uh, as well as the local uh, potential liquidity, um how do you think it's positioned? Because that net liquidity positioning has not changed, except for you know this big uh, kerfuffle which we got from the Silicon Valley Bank and the rest of the run on the banking system. So how how do those two things intersect? Well, resolution of the debt ceiling will happen. It has to happen, and there will be some concessions in there, such as lower spending in something don't know what it is but i mean you're literally you're talking about it's going to be like 50 billion dollars of spending cuts so they can pat themselves on the back uh just after uh biden got a three trillion dollar build back better so <laughs> the spending cuts are just it's nonsense it doesn't matter but when that happens yellen is mandated to unwind her extraordinary uh circumstances and she'll have to come back to the market uh, for probably six or eight months with um, an extra 80 to $120 billion of debt to uh, sell. 
And that that doesn't mean that treasuries get killed. Um, all that means is that liquidity gets drawn out of the entire system. And then you put on top of that our normal deficit, which is ongoing now at about $100 billion a month, a little bit more, because I think the tax receipts are going to suck. And then uh, we have the Fed's quantitative tightening, which he's probably not going to change until we're uh, 5% jobless. Um, and then lastly, we have uh, student loans that are very likely to come back on. And this is large. It's $300 for 40 million Americans a month. And that will be in, at the end of August. And right. So real quick in that front, right? So uh, specifically for the Fed, uh, you mentioned Fed will continue to hike the interest rate, let's say it's 25 bips, right, uh, in the upcoming FOMC. I honestly don't know. If they hike yeah. 25 bips, this market's getting tanked. Tanked. So so you think they'll stay paused until... I don't know. Data point? Okay. Bang. If they hike 25 bips, we're getting tanked. The, the, the whisper consensus is no more hikes. Got it. Period. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I heard that too. Uh, so uh, let's say they don't hike, right? And do you think he still comes out every month for $85 billion, you know, QT? Yes, yes. Okay, so while that is happening, they also open this discount window for allowing borrowing for all these FRCs and, you know, the Xeons of the world to... Uh, to to do their borrowing against their agency MBS or other treasuries at par, right? So does that constitute to a certain degree proxy QE, which would negate the QT effect? Not, not really, because remember, they're only going to come and borrow against it if they need right. to. Right. Only, only if there's a, a deposit uh, liquidity. Exactly. Yeah. So is that going to be... No, it it, it doesn't create liquidity, it prevents uh, insolvency. Right. Okay. So, but yeah. I don't think that's introducing new liquidity into the system. Got it. And that's a great point because that amounts to approximately, because currently the, um, when I was running the numbers, I found the total uh, for overall, I mean, this is FDIC data, right? They had 620 billion up until uh, 1231. Uh, after that, uh, it got slightly better with the uh, with the slight uh, you know easing kind of effect, and then uh, most recently when I was just uh, aggregating all the unrealized losses um, as well as the accumulated OCI right or the comprehensive income for the listed banks, it was coming somewhere close to like five six hundred billion. Now, assuming only maybe thirty forty percent of that actually is required for avoiding any run on the bank by the banks. Uh, it comes out to a much smaller number. So uh, I agree, and I understand your uh, assessment about it not being some sort of added liquidity because it's actually a loan that the bank gets against uh, their holdings uh, so that they're not carrying it uh, held to maturity. So now when does timeline-wise, from a Domino's perspective, right, or shoes to draw perspective, when does the credit risk start? Is it... Two quarters from now? Is it four quarters from now? Is it summer? Um, when does that start? I think it starts in the prelude. We'll be building permits. 
Uh, okay, got it. it. It's going to be at the, I think the real credit problems. Yes, we, we've already in commercial real estate, it's, we're there. Like people don't know it yet, but they will in the next three months, uh, probably sooner. But yes, Roxy wants to get out of my office. There you go, sir. Okay. So. And we have Redrob uh, in the listener mode. I don't know if he can join us. Oh, I love Redrob. Oh, my God. He is, <laughs> he is a messenger from God. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so speaking of which, you know, have you added any more new potential zeros to your list? Uh, I have an enormous hey, guys. number. Um, a lot of them were on my whiteboard. Not all of them. Uh, but um, they aren't really working yet for, hmm, let's see, 50% of them. And that has a lot to do with, I believe, um, hedge funds blowing the hell up. Right. right. So I think that we're going to see uh, really meaningful hedge fund redemptions in 2Q, starting in 2Q. And, uh, and the, those notices are going to go in now for 2Q. Uh, so when I, I've kind of put all these things together, um, I, you know, with the building permits, the student loans, the reverse actions of the treasuries, continued quantitative tightening, um, you know, I think that we're going to see a real problem with uh, asset values. And um, yep. And and honestly, it looks like this like every time where we we stay in denial for a long time until jobless claims lift and then it's real. And then the Fed cuts, cuts, cuts. Uh, everyone gets very excited because they cut, cut, cut. Uh, stocks lift and then they immediately go down because then we have real world credit problems, you know, because of jobless. And yeah, that goes when, on for years, right? The repairing of that credit goes on for years before it comes back up again. Exactly. And yeah. and when you look at the debt to GDP right now, it's like laughably off the rails, higher than just parabolic. So the probability of something going wrong is very, 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 very high. The probability of the government having a budget for next year that's a gigantic spend is very low to offset a recession because they've been kind of called out. I mean, just by the projections right now in Biden's own paper, they're estimating that the the coupon costs to the federal government are going to be up almost 50, about 50% next year. And this is the problem that I was talking about of annualizing these high interest rates on the short end of the yield curve. I think it's going to go down, but that won't really affect the, the dollars that this federal government is going to have to hand out in coupons next year. So, so I kind of put all those things together and I just say, boy, well, how do asset values go up? I don't know. I have no idea. No. <laughs> got it. So on that no front, Mike, uh, you know, we had Reed Rob up here. Maybe he got some glitch or something and he went away. I know we discussed our favorite read MPW, right? Uh, and MPW is now in the eight handle. Yeah. Um, 
any new reads or any new stories on that front from the real estate side other than Blackstone or other than uh, MPW, which uh, which come to uh, comes to your mind? I know Aries was one of them on your whiteboard back. Yeah, it's still there. It's still. Yep. There. So any new ideas that came up to your mind, which along with this kind of run on the bank would call that whole asset liability matching issue and you know rob's back we can play back and forth between you and Rob. i'm at a point now where i have to i have to really hunker down and evaluate for new new ideas i have a lot of ideas right now um and many of them are you know many of them have actually come up in the past three months but what it looks like to me is that any any company that is a consumer company with a lot of debt is in real trouble. And that's it. And this includes cruise lines. It will end up being the airlines in the end. Um, and these are really like usual suspects because we're going into, I think, a very, very classical recessionary elevated job loss environment but what's different is that the debt to gdp is astronomical and we're going to be during this downturn we're going to be engaging in synthetic and real quantitative tightening which i've never seen before the fed's probably not going to be able to react to it until much later in the year when they take down the quantitative tightening but I don't think that'll happen until jobless claims have really ramped. And as you know, the jobless claims ramping is so backward looking. You know, they, they don't fire these people until they absolutely have to. And I'll give you an example. I know of a, a bank, a private bank and investment bank in, in New York City. And, and this can be a proxy for most of them. They basically have no business going on. And... Um, a woman that worked there called me, who who I used to work with, and uh, asked me, well, we've been really lucky because we literally have nothing to do, but they've been holding off on doing any layoffs. This is before this banking thing, so this is a week ago. And, and she, she was asking me, do you think that it's going to get so bad that they're going to be forced to do so? Because they've been vocal about it. That they're holding off and trying to keep everybody on board for a turn. And to me, that only meant that when the layoffs come, it will be much larger than 5 or 10%. They'll literally walk in there and take a hatchet to 30% of the people. And, and part of the reason why they'll have to, well, I'll tell you why they don't want to. They don't want to because they just paid through the nose for everyone they got as they yep, built including up. Including sign-on bonuses and hikes. And oh, yeah, yeah. And plus the ramp-up time, right? Like and, some of them. And, they and they plus some want... of their people are leaving. Like some of the existing people are leaving looking at newcomers. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they don't want to be, and you know how it is. Management doesn't want to look bad. They don't want to be wrong. But I took a big gamble. I expanded. We paid through the nose. We have a really big staff now. And it's ego. And that and that they're going to sit there and hope because they don't want to be wrong on a really big bet. Not realizing that the longer they wait, the wronger they are. And that's the hardest part of staying logical about that. Um, Agreed. Agreed. I, I talked to a contractor that I know, one of the largest in Maryland, 
this weekend. And he said, told me everything's good. Everything is fine. Uh, I think we're having a soft landing. Uh, people have jobs and, um, and he's getting work. And I said, well, what, what is it like versus a year ago or two? And he's like, it's 50% less. Um, <laughs> but this is a funny thing, though. He says, yeah, but I'm going to make just as much money as I did because our margins are better now because of our input costs have gone down. So he's happy because he's, his, his EBITDA is still the same, even though his revenue is down almost 50%. And he's been able to downsize his company, cut, cut his company in half with his uh, contract people. So, so, and he's good about it. He's like, we're fine. And then interest rates will go down and the economy will take off and that's it. Now, you got to remember, you're talking about a person who is not literate or terribly literate in macro financial. So, you know, he doesn't know that. But he'll be one of the last people to see the real economy fall apart because most people down there or there's a ton of government jobs. So people won't lose their money. But he's content having good margins and half the revenue. And, and that's like, that's real to me. That sounded a lot like what I'm hearing here, where I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep things going for as long as I can, because uh, until I absolutely have to, and then I'm going to really take a hatchet to a, an incredible number of people. And that's kind of what I, I see uh, kind of everywhere. And so when that hatchet comes, and I believe it's right now, it's happening. Uh, you'll, you will feel it when you start to feel it you have to realize that this whatever the bad jobs number that we have coming the next one after it will be much worse and so will the yep. one after that so as soon as it starts i think it's going to accelerate meaningfully yep i call it as the layoff porn right and uh, there are anonymous forums such as team blind or blind app on which uh, tech workers go and talk about their layoffs and, you know, they literally lay out a whole lot of uh, information uh, about their companies or their experiences as they go through these layoffs. In fact, there's a, another website called thelayoff.com. You don't even need an app for that. Uh, it's categorized by companies over there, uh, but blind is a slightly better form. So that actually brings us up to two interesting aspects and i do want to acknowledge your uh, redrop is here so redrop congratulations we you made were, it yes <laughs> and i made we, it <laughs> yeah uh, we were talking about mpw when you had to step out earlier oh yeah and, can, uh, can yeah. we can we talk about one thing about mpw yep because yeah, sure. i remember when we we were looking at this this is over a year ago and god this smells right this is oh and then deeper you look the worse it is well Stort's building a new hospital oh no they're not oh they took all that all those loans and used it as operating capital uh-oh they can't ever file a uh, financial now because the cfo would never you know ever want to put his name to paper on that that's essentially admitting theft and of course you know the cfo is gone now and as is most of the management team there and the yeah. Stort is a remember it's only 19% of revenues for MPW. So it doesn't really count now, right? Well, it, it, it will be, yeah, it doesn't really count. <laughs> it's still, it's still 30% before they sell Utah. 
Uh, no, I know, I know, but I know. love the chicanery that's going on, and 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 then the deeper we looked, the more we realized that Stort and MPW are the same management team. They're yeah. essentially the same company. They're, it's all. I'm sorry, and in my humble opinion, it is <laughs> same, very same. likely a scam, and they've been shaking down this whole thing in a quote unquote semi legal fashion for the entire duration. And the, of unprofitable businesses overpaying their rents to, uh, you know, pay out coupons on this REIT and keep using more and more and more and more leverage until it runs out. And then that's it. It's over. And we're in the it's over phase. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, so it really only works the way they've contemplated contemplated or like set it up um, if they have access to capital external capital that is and um right now and then the reason why is it's circular right so like if you if you really like <clears throat> if you think of like what mike just said uh anyone and mike tell me if i'm wrong about this but anyone who knows anything about hospitals knows that it's it's a very thin margin business to begin with and uh, the best hospital owners like if you think of the hcas of the world they they actually demand not just prefer but demand to own their own real estate because they understand that like when you when you lease it, when you put a rent burden underneath that very thin margin, it basically lights a fuse on the whole thing. And so if you think about that, it, it, it creates this like adverse selection scenario where like the best hospital operators want to own their own real estate and <clears throat> not necessarily the worst, but like the ones that are struggling financially go to the sale leaseback market to raise capital. And, and MPW is effectively that entire market, or at least it was. And, and so they, they pushed this as far as they could go with these like kind of, you know, struggling tenants of size that are paying above market unsustainable rents. And they were able to do it. It's, it's just another um, open capital market story, right? Like if you can go out and sell stock, s issue bonds at, at attractive, you know, yields or attractive costs, you can kind of keep this thing going. But now um, the capital markets are, for all intents and purposes, closed to them. And Steward and Prospect have to function and stand on their own on their own merit. Well, we, we just basically saw Steward fail. Uh, so uh, Prospect fail, excuse me, for all intents and purposes. And, and our contention is that Steward is, is kind of right behind it and unable to um to fund itself so it's it's a really ugly it's, it's now by the way yeah they, look they factored their medicare receivables for like over 12 percent interest it, to make to, payroll to care max yep to yep. make payroll and it's <clears throat> like when you do that i mean they're so out of schlitz what, what i just what i can't the what i underestimated is that they're all in a and they've just been they've been pillaging this entire business, uh, loading it up with debt and, and stripping it and paying themselves heftily and whatever stock they had sell when you can. Yeah, that was it. And it's all been just a sham on the uh, index investors and the guys that are like, okay, I'll be long REITs because I like that yield. Not specifically MPW, just all of them. And yeah. so MPW might only represent 1% of the book, so who cares? And, and these guys figured that out and pillaged this entire thing. And now they're at a point where their yield is, I think their yield's 13% now um, 
I, I think they can't borrow and their actual cash flows from their businesses is negative. So, yep. I mean, kind of over. including, <laughs> and then at some point they're going to have to take a mark on all these loans that they have out to these insolvent entities. And then it's really, really, really over. Yep. So uh, it's a, what I, I didn't rec- realize like stored, you know, how far they'd go, you know, bribing officials in Malta to get another shakedown entity. So they really looked long, far and wide to find, you know, instances where they could make a scam and MPW was right there uh, helping to fund it. So they all, I, they all, at some point, at some point, there is going to be a, a subpoena for all of the dialogue, texts, emails, and all that stuff from all these guys. And we will find out that they were one in the same company and, and basically just running, a, in my humble opinion, a scam. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very combustible situation right now. Um, you know, if you like, I, I actually I have to drop in a second, but like just one last point, and we we've been kind of talking about this. Uh, you know, J- Jim Chanos, uh, not not to drag him into this, but he makes some very good points about REITs, uh, including the data centers. You know, and and the industrials, right? Like storage. Yeah, yeah, sure. It, it, absolutely. It, it, so one of the metrics that REITs use is uh, is AFFO or adjusted funds from operations. And what you kind of have to accept and like learn as you go is that there's no standard definition for that. And there's lots of leeway around how and, and what <clears throat> how companies, you know, different REITs calculated and what they include. I would put, and th- again, this is also my humble opinion, I would put a, uh, MPW's definition of AFFO, which is used to calculate dividend coverage or, or estimate dividend coverage, like kind of right at the bottom in terms of quality. I mean, they. this is not me, this is not my opinion. They, they changed of AFFO over three straight quarters last year, right before their second largest tenant um, stopped paying rent. Um, and you know, moreover, they don't include this recurrent, I call it quote unquote CapEx burden that a triple net reach should not have yet. They spend like 40 to $50 million a quarter, if not more. Well, th- that's a real use of cash and they do get a return on it. It gets added to the lease base, but it's kind of like a, a big, massive negative MPV loan. If you put a hundred million and you get back in a year, you're 93 to <laughs> so like you have to you have to think about that or include it in your cash flow forecast and when you do that they're basically borrowing to fund their dividend payment right now and and again that's not my opinion that's fact they borrowed 300 million on their revolving credit facility in the fourth quarter well their ending cash balance was like 240 meaning if they hadn't done that they would have had negative cash <laughs> so like when i say they're borrowing to fund their dividend that's not me just like opining that's actually what's happening That is stunning. Yeah, it's quite, it's wild. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you guys go. I don't want to hog all the time, but th- thanks, Mike. Thanks for the kind words. Trent, Rob, be well. I gotta, I actually got to run and help with the wife and the kids. So I'll, I'll see you guys later. Thank you. Read Rob, ladies and gentlemen. Be well, guys. Catch you later. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you. All right. So switching gears from REITs to the healthcare sector, 
now that healthcare sector is coming up, right? We had one huge acquisition by Pfizer, and then we had the smaller caps taking a beating with this whole Silicon Valley stuff. Did you go out doing any bargain hunting, Mike, for when the Silicon Valley stuff hit the bio biotech? No. Speaking, not not your fund, right? No discussion about your fund. Just yeah. asking. In yes. General. Well, you can yeah. see real time uh, what my fund's done. So, um, uh, no, no, not yet. Um, one of the most astonishing things that I see uh, over and over, and you saw it today, where it doesn't matter how bad tech models or pharma models, um, fins go down. And so they turn around and buy all of these entities up and, and it doesn't really matter what the fundamentals are of these companies and they move with a very high correlation. And, and that happened for the large part all of last year. Um, I like down here, Oh, that's not true. So I have, I have uh, definitely acted on it. Um, the HMOs have been um, smashed. Uh, and I think that this was just money coming out and going into tech. Uh, I think uh, because there really isn't a problem with the HMOs, but they trade like that. Uh, many of them are trading at a discount to pharma. And that's wild because these companies are sustainable, um, well-run, sort of an oligopoly versus pharma that have gigantic holes in their revenue lines uh, due to patent expiry. But they're trading at very similar multiples. So when you say HMO, it's the likes of United Health, Elevance, which was the former Anthem, those companies, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, not specifically uh, uh, UNH, but uh, like Cigna and, and ELV, like you just mentioned, Got uh, it. they've, they've underperformed and, and I had to explain it to um, my guys because they were like, you know, because these are such incredible um, bargains, but they're bargains because all of these HMOs, or most of them, have dropped substantially against UNH. And they're all in the same business. And the, in fact, all the, all the slightly smaller ones in UNH are trading at a huge discount to UNH. And so how is UNH so different? It's not. But what is different is where it is in the benchmark. And UNH and Johnny John are the biggest names in the healthcare benchmark. And, and I was explaining to them when people take off money out of that benchmark and take the weight down to plow into Apple or whatever, they are afraid naturally that they don't want to underperform too badly. And so they won't take it so much unless there's a real fundamental reason. They won't take it out of a UNH. They'll go underweight their HMOs by selling everything else but. UNH. And that's what they did. So that way they can still have representation in the benchmark uh, and, and get the liquidity out to plow into another space. And I think that's what we just saw over the past six weeks, big time. And this is a very important nugget of wisdom for all of the 700 plus audience right now. And those who would even listen to this later on as a recording, 
um, from the Hedgeye Nation uh, that how portfolio managers have to think of their trade-offs of the pieces of inventory that they keep in their portfolio from a standpoint of um, whether the company is great or not is one aspect, but then they have to also understand or play with the allocation, the momentum, and performance aspect because uh, that ends up driving the overall performance. So uh, definitely a great uh, nugget of wisdom, Mike. Uh, that was the reason also why, why Apple Mike. stays up and that because it's such a big piece of the benchmark, anyone who is going to sell it is taking a very, 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 very big bet about against the benchmark. So uh, that's one of the reasons why Apple will hold up so well. Uh, in the past, if you recall, the mighty giant General Electric, that thing was a disaster, and it took forever for it to fall apart. But when it did, oh, my God, you just had decades and decades of money that had to get out of it. So I'm not saying Apple's going to do that. I'm just saying that's how frequently these large benchmark weightings will trade. And in this case, you're seeing that in UNH versus a Cigna. But right now, that spread is so wide and the valuation is so compelling when you pair that versus a pharma that when I look at that and I'm like, okay, over five years, which is going to outperform Cigna? Absolutely. You know, will it be over the next three months? I don't know. But it certainly will be over the next 18 months versus a pharma. And, and that really just has to do with sustainable earnings growth. You know, these HMOs have it. Pharma does not. But there's a lot of these pharma names are bigger in the benchmark for healthcare. So therefore, the money as of the past two days has been plowing into that blind to what these companies actually do. And we saw that all of last year. So I actually have a lot of alpha positions in the pink fund right now, uh, more than I normally would. And it is actually underperformed pretty bad, badly 2.6%, but it has underperformed my uh, benchmark. And, and that's really because I, I decided to, because I had so many alpha uh, positions slash ideas that I decided to actually wait more towards those alpha ideas rather than the benchmark. Uh, the top seven names in that benchmark have absolutely dominated the entire move in healthcare. And, and that was the case all of last year. Uh, a little known fact that, that many don't know is that it is not um, legal, if you will, uh, per the rules post-2008 to concentrate your funds, uh, uh, actively managed fund, uh, to be overweight those benchmark names. There are concentration limitations in mutual funds now. Unfortunately, those limitations are not applied to the indices or the benchmarks. So what you're seeing right now is extremely concentrated benchmarks where five or six, seven names will constitute most of the weighting in the entire space, but none of the mutual funds are able to overweight that or even mirror it. So we're forced to go and find uh, alpha ideas outside of it. 
great point. And I think, Rob, you had a related question, right, Rob? Over to you. I did. We kind of moved on, so we can just we can keep going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries, no worries. So related to healthcare, Mike, uh, you know, there's uh, multiple parts of it. You mentioned about HMO, which is your kind of a topic. What about pharma, you know, PJP and the like? I'm sorry. You'll have to. Um... P- PJ, uh, he's talking about kind of, I think, benchmarks on PJP, so like the Invesco Pharmaceutical um, ETF. I don't actually know what's inside of it, but. Oh, I. Sorry. Hold on. Let me pull, let me pull it up. What's the ticker on it? Uh, PJP, Peter, John, Paul, or Peter, John, Peter, which is totally not aviator language, but forgive me. Do, 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 do. It, it's more pharmaceutical oriented versus like the healthcare. Yeah. So like XLB, because you, you were referring yeah, to Yeah, and you can XLB, see this, correct? like for instance, how they did it. It's a pharma ETF and all the weightings in it, like the max weighting is like 6%. And so you yep. have 6%, 6%, 6%, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5.5, 5
Um, so I get that. But but again, like if I think if we go on two sides of the coin in terms of where would you hide in the near term uh, in, inside or where would you kind of historically hide in the near term? But well, then also how, how I hide. I'm I'm <laughs> personal, you invested. I'm personal, sorry. Go ahead. My own fund. Yeah. Uh, size. And uh, and I'm super long the two year. Yeah. And somebody had a question about that. Do you do it through the futures or do you do it just do uh, the options on? on, on I'm using future? mostly is Mike Green runs a fund through Simplify. The ticker is T-U-A. Okay. T-U-A. And yep. that, that, that I, I, last time I read the description, its goal is to outperform the five, five to seven year treasury. Perfect. Okay. And so he can use, he has a big latitude on yeah, how he, to accomplish yeah, that. He, he, yeah. So the, the the man, yeah, because that, that's like a managed futures, or not, it's not the managed futures account, but they use futures and other derivatives inside of that in order to make that happen. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, and awesome. It actually, it actually, like, because right now that that coupon is four to five percent on the two year, depending on the day. Right. And so you can you can do it in a pretty inexpensive way using those coupons to uh, lever up. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so those, awesome. So those listening in, go take a look at uh, UTA. I'm also not saying that's what he's doing. I'm saying he has the latitude to do that. Correct. Because I don't um, see the book. I don't know what exa- how it's exactly set up. Yeah. Uh, what was that ticker again, Mikey? I'm sorry? What was that the ticker? The ticker again? is TUA. TUA. Sorry, I thought it was UAT. Uh, got it. TUA, yeah. So with, um, on the Simplify website, you can go look at the holdings and kind of take a general assessment as to how they're expressing that um, exposure to try to beat the five to seven years. So we won't get in nitty gritty. Or you can get my green or, or, or we can get my green up or we can, or you can also just go out and um, again, do your own due diligence, but TUA is there. And uh, if you want to express that, that exposure, you can run alongside Mike there. Um, Rod, now I'm going to come to you in just one second. I want to finish this thought with Mike in terms of, okay, so, if you're uh let's go on like risk on environment let's just like switch gears from like doom like i, I know doom and gloom i think we've covered that piece so let's go risk on where yes. where did you see the most opportunity coming out of um like basically a credit crisis environment of the 08 like era of the great financial crisis so actually the better example because i think it'll be more like it is 03 Oh, three. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I would 100%. Yes, I would 100% agree. And yep. the only reason is because 08 was so fierce and ferocious uh, that and into 09 that you didn't have a lot of time to think about it. Sure. Whereas in 03, 02 to 03, there were so, I was measuring my companies based upon a multiple of cash on the balance sheet. <laughs> right. Any company that was trading at four times cash was expensive. And I had such difficulty picking one versus the other because they were all a buy. Or not all, but let's say the vast majority of them were a buy, or at least people would think that. You know, in the right. biotech space, it's very difficult for the masses to really estimate the risk and probability of what's in their pipeline. So 
it tended to be whatever company was the loudest and the most promotional, that was the buy. And that was trading at three and a half or three times cash. Sure. So I think that coming out of this, it's going to be a garbage run. And I don't mean garbage run for companies that are going to go uh, bankrupt like AMC, because I, I have no idea how they avoid insolvency. That's just one of many. But when you go through, uh, there's going to be a lot of good ideas that get thrown out. And, and how they get thrown out for our listeners is um, hedge funds, redemptions, uh, which I think are going to accelerate in 2Q and well into the back half of the year. And there, you're going to have these forced sellers of where they're in really their favorite ideas and they have, a, they have to sell a third. And that'll be it. And there's no buyer on the other side. And that's what happened in 02. 01, 02. Uh, the difference between then and now is two things. The number of hedge funds is, and hedge fund money involved is way, 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 way larger. And then number two is the debt to GDP is much, much, much higher than ever. Way bigger, yeah. So, so um, the carnage that may happen in uh, SMID cap favorite ideas uh, could end up being very extreme. Yeah, yeah, right. So where you saw three and a half, four, I mean, it's it's possible well, that you could see half that, and, you know, you could see point two, three and a half, whatever, you point, yeah. We could, no, we could still see three and a half, four times. But on the other side of that, you know, back in 03, I was looking at 60, 70 companies like that. Now right. there's 800 in healthcare, <laughs> right? right? So right. that's the difference is that... Yeah. The number of companies, the sheer magnitude is is so much larger this time. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, just and just to clarify my comment about Quad One and Q3, uh, we certainly, you know, so that's the nowcast model on paper at the moment, but that's conditional probabilities. And therefore, those conditional probabilities shift and change as yes. new data comes into uh, the fold, right? So as we get... Um, you know, as, as we get the PPI number, for instance, you know, you know, later CPI tomorrow, PPI, you know, the jobless games, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like uh, ISN numbers, all, all that kind of stuff. So there's about 30 different components for those listening in that go into that now cast that um, help tweak that. And so then, uh, so yeah, so again, on paper at the moment, it's quad one, but then we also uh, have a, a favorite saying of, of the signal trumps the quad, quad, right, Mike? And so yes. it's all about kind of what the flow, what the flow and the markets are actually doing. Um, that is really what drives us. So you could see a quad one on paper, but a quad four type environment where you know we are in a you know earnings recession, and uh, therefore, uh, to your point, there is you know it's not that there's nowhere to hide, but it's just it's a much prolonged process than. Uh, the quote, quote, kind of V-shaped recovery that we saw in 2020. Uh, now, again, this, there's a lot of caveats in there in regards to what the Fed might do and if there's QE versus QT and, and all those kind of things that, you know, over time, we're going to kind of, especially as we get closer to Q3, we're going to have a lot more um, data points in the in the old cap to assess and, and evaluate. So just want to put that out there. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that quad one gets pushed back to 1Q next year. So yeah. because that's that number is really kind of a contingent upon employment staying and consumption staying, like you said, earnings, earnings, yeah. all yeah, of that. So we've got 
we've got a great slide. Um, Those are things that are hard to know. Yeah, we've got a great slide that I'll, I'll, I'll tweet out um, as well uh, because Keith shared it in the past. And, and it goes back to that same time frame you were referring to in regards to kind of that, that 01 to 03 time period. And that was the last time we had like four quad fours on uh, like in a row. And then it shifted to quad one. But the market didn't really bottom when those that quad one appeared on paper because there was still a lot of kind of discovery to kind of, you know, that, that needed to transpire. And, and people were evaluating, like you just said, in regards to, you know, what what are the companies that are going to come out of this and, and where do I want to actually invest? And do I want to pay four times cash or do I want to pay three and a half or should I wait till three, right? Because mm-hmm. it'd been, you know, it'd been, you know, 18 months, 24 months uh, at that point. And it was a very prolonged process. So it, it's, it's, it's possible that we have a very a, a similar situation here where we have, again, multiple quad fours and then potentially quad ones on the on paper. But uh, the, the, the market or the, or the signal certainly doesn't um, mesh with that same quad. But uh, Well, anyway. I will say this. In the past, between Saturday and Monday, I have had three CEOs reach out to me. Uh, two are private companies. One is public company. Looking for work. Meaning looking, no, let me rephrase that. Looking for a change. Sure. Yeah. And so I don't know all the details because I, I won't, you know, I'm not going to ask. Of course. But I was, that has, that happens, guys. That happens about once a quarter, not three times on a Saturday, a Sunday, and a Monday. <laughs> right. Okay. That, that's, you know, well, hey, you know, what's going on at Simplify? And I was thinking to myself, if they're calling me, they've already called a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. and, and, and I'm, I love to assist greatly, greatly, because, you know, I love helping bright people find their way. Uh, it's a gift to me to be able to assist in any way. I mean, that's all we get in the end and is the joy of assisting. Uh, and, and watching the flowers blossom. And, and so I, I, I am o- always have my door open, uh, but, but getting three calls in three days, um, and uh, wait, two of them were in person uh, at, at uh, races this weekend because uh, we get a, a big, you know, motley crew of people who do this from all, all walks. And uh, I'm one of the few Wall Street people that are in racing. And so it's, a, it's an interesting mix. I get to see what's going on in the real world a lot. And I had two people come out to me and ask me about, you know, what they can do next, what they'd like to do. And I, I didn't even know that they were in trouble. Um, so that, that, that's what it tells me, that they're seeing a horizon that looks not good and they want to switch up. And I think that if I'm getting calls like that, that means it's happening everywhere. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like a big tell for me that was very unsettling. But I remember that's what happens is that everything's fine until it's not. And then people start making decisions and they tend to all do it at once. And that's kind of what I'm seeing. So I hope I hope we have a soft landing. 
I mean, I hope that the Fed can thread the needle with an inverted yield curve. Uh, he should have done a lot more sooner. And I don't understand why didn't do it last year. But now they're in a huge pickle. And I'll draw your attention to my call with Keith in January, talking about how I hope that they crater this economy. Because if they don't, they're going to have to engage in yield curve control, which will cause untold carnage over the intermediate and long term. Yeah, because for your listener, that's where the central bank simply prints money to tell you what the yield is, meaning the cost of money for the government, because they're buying their own debt and they throw out inflation metrics and everything else out the window. They don't care because they're literally doing that to save themselves. Japan has engaged in this now for a decade. Mm -hmm. And they're now at the end where they own most of their bond market. They're a major holder of their stock market. They've told all the pensions and insurance companies how to invest and what to do and mandated them to buy more, you know, JGBs. And now they have inflation and they just discovered that they can't stop printing without causing a calamity, an economic calamity. And so they're changing their tune and their story every three weeks as to what they're doing, what they're going to do. And but one thing remains is that they cannot stop printing, even though they have inflation. Yeah, then you see that their tenure go down 11 basis points, aka 27 percent in the day. <laughs> so, yes, it's. So, Mike, that actually brings up the international allocations point, right? Do you have any substantial international allocations in general? Actually, I do. I do. I am long countries that are stealing work from China. Hmm. Southeast Asia, Mexico, uh, the rents, uh, that's a MBA term, um, the rents are being excised out of China because their cost of uh, labor is too high. And of course, I, I mean, something I've been saying for most of the past 20 years is that in the end, you're never going to get your money out of China. You can't. And that's what we're discovering right now because they're literally out of dollars. So China won't let any money out. And so you're finding out that it's actually a terrible place to do business. And, and so the, uh, the outcome is, is that the other countries are going to benefit meaningfully. In the case of Mexico, I actually think that you know, the, their sort of labor demand there is such that the folks that would come here to work illegally or legally don't have a tremendous incentive to do so right now out of Mexico. And so they're probably going to see some meaningful economic growth. And it's really just stealing it from China. And part of it is our policy. The other part of it is China's um, labor issue. They ran out of cheap labor and they're not making any new workers. <laughs> Negative population growth and no family or very tiny family generation. I mean, 30 years from now, 30 years from now, China will have one third less the population than they do now. Yeah. Who is going to move into those hundred something million vacant apartments that are in China when the population is dropping by a third? 
It's insane. Japan is actually quite similar. Korea is very similar. And most of, actually all of Southern Europe is very similar. 30 years from now, all of them will have about 30% fewer people living there. Should be good for climate change, right? <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a word. That, to work this to that was a little glib. That was a little glib. I apologize. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> uh, but I don't know what I don't know what happens exactly. But I assume all of them are going to end up printing an awful lot of money to offset a debt collapse because the debt's still there. The workers and the consumption and the people aren't. So I, I just I just think that they're going to have to trounce their currencies, no matter what, all of them. Because I just don't see any other way. Meaning that's politically... Mm, like, like viable. Acceptable. Right. Yeah. See, yeah. printing money <clears throat> is acceptable because asset values go up and you don't lose elected office. So... yeah. And, and the U.S. is, um, you know, we'll probably end up having more inflows, immigration, thank God. And we will have a slightly, slowly, you know, creeping 0.5% population growth during that tenure. Um, so 30 years from now, the least dirty shirt and probably the best currency will be the U.S., and, um, you know, there'll be maybe Mexico will be a much bigger player. Um, but but still, it'll be the U.S. And I don't right, so, the other way. Oh, sorry, Mikey. I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought you were done. Um, <laughs> right, we got a couple couple folks that have jumped on. Um, so why don't we get to their questions, Mike, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a night. But this has been a great discussion. I always appreciate your time. Uh, so we'll go with Rod and then Al. Then I'll go over to... Uh, the viro virologist. Um, so, Rod, welcome, my yep. friend. Thanks, Rob. How you doing, man? Yeah, yeah course, I'm doing bud. pretty well. I was going to agree yeah. with uh, Mike's sentiment toward Mexico. I worked at Ryder for five years in corporate strategy, and that trend toward nearshoring really has gotten accelerated amidst COVID, and I think it will continue. Uh, as he noted, with the exodus out of China, Mexico makes a whole lot of sense. I think it will continue to. I had a question on the healthcare side, building off that combo. Um, yeah, we can Mike, return there. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a big, big player trading at uh, 52 week lows, trading at right around its lowest EV to EBIT in a decade. Uh, it's got consumer exposure, which I hear you don't like, but it does own Aetna. So, don't know if you have any thoughts on that one. Is it an opportunity here, or should uh, people steer clear? Is it a trap? No, it's actually uh, performed very much like the other HMOs. Uh, that are not UNH because and, and they've performed very similarly in the benchmark. Uh, these these companies um, uh, over over the as a hedge I would say over a tail duration will outperform uh, earnings uh, versus uh, other groups. So I'm definitely so that's, three, that's three years or less for those that don't know what tail duration means. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, because remember, they control the cost and they set the price. So, and if you think that there's going to be a Republican administration in 24, 
these names are going to rip. Appreciate it. And I do. So, but that's a 24 trade. That's like seven careers from now. <laughs> yeah, but Rod, which you'll know about Rod, Rod likes thinking long term. He likes kind of stashing some stuff away. And, and yes, yeah, so that makes sense, Rod. That's very on brand. That question was very on brand, my friend. Uh, so thanks for jumping up, bud. I appreciate it. Uh, Al, how you doing? Hey, I'm good, Robert. And, uh, and Mike, thanks, me. Um, Blake, like you, I'm kind of kicking myself for not seeing Silicon Valley for what it was because, you know, we've been ranting about profitless tech all year. And how about lending to the least profitable and the most immature of tech? Uh, what could go wrong? But uh, so my question is on, um, on private equity, which we haven't talked to talked about, which to me is, you know, levered long the Russell. Uh, so what could go wrong? Uh, I think we're starting to see a bunch of cracks in the in the big publicly traded GPs, but you know what um, what I'm seeing you know, kind of uh, anecdotally is I'm getting spam emails from the Apollos and the Brookfields about oh it's a great time to invest in private equity as a as a retail investor, which uh, is really scary, and uh, in my you know regular business the um, Let's just say that private equity is, is nowhere near as aggressive a bidder for you know, companies that are for sale. Um, uh, last thing, and then I'll hopefully you can comment on this, is that you know back in 08 when the mortgage market was imploding, um, the street at first didn't want to win any bids for product that was being dumped into the market. And part of that turned out to be that they didn't want to have to value the assets they already had at the price they were paying for, you know, stuff in the marketplace. Um, if uh, private equity, you know, is doing a roll-up and you know they're valuing something at 15 times EBITDA, and then they buy, you know, a uh, uh, an add-on company to their platform at 7x, uh, you know, that's going to cause some ripples on their marks. Is that what finally drives it? Or, you know, how do you see that playing out and how do we play it? Thank you. Yes. We've been talking about this since last year, uh, well into last year, and that this will be one of the big shoes to drop. And I mean, just think about the incentive to take your mark. And for your listeners, take your mark means I have a private tech company that's worth $100 because I bought it for $100. And uh, unfortunately, if I turned around to sell it right now, it would sell for 40 cents on the dollar or $40. So what I really should do is mark that in my book. But if I mark that in my book, it would end up in your quarterly statement. And if that happened to end up in your quarterly statement, you might want your damn money back. And that's what they're trying to avoid. So what they're going to say is it's never been a better time. But really the best time to invest is when your dad tells you it's never been a worse time. That's, that's when it's time to buy. Because that means all of they, that your dad has sold. And so we're in that spot right now where I think on a whole lot of privates are going to have to be marked down materially over the remainder of the year. 
And people are going to see it in their statements and they're going to freak out and they're going to want their money back, which will push down marks uh, on top of that. So it's usually a cascade that lasts for about two years. And what we're walking into right now, like if SI um, is going to sell their 800 some odd private investments they have in tech, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the, if the average price of those sales are 50 to 60 cents on the dollar. And on that, it's going to force an incredible number of investment funds to the auditors will now finally force them to take the marks on the book. And you'll see it with a one quarter delay. And that'll be that. And then people may say, well, maybe it isn't the best time to invest. So, I mean, again, this is the problem with an inverted yield curve. This is what happens. And it's always the same where they don't take the mark for as long as they can until they absolutely have to, because they know what's going to happen is that when people see the return then in their statement, they're going to want their money back. And the whole idea is to take their money and keep their money. So this is another shoe that has to drop. It's a big one. It's a big one. And it's, it's kind of like, I actually thought that this would have happened a little sooner, meaning like a quarter, but, what I underestimated was the treasury coming in and creating a synthetic quantitative easing uh, during the, uh, the debt ceiling uh, debacle. And I, I really underestimated that. I also underestimated um, China's liquidity flush of a, you know, what, $500 billion in the period of like four months uh, coming into the market. So that that uh, begs for reminiscing what Mike did at the last Hedgeye Live in May of 2022. I know a whole bunch of you were there. I definitely met Gavin, Rob, Leslie, a whole bunch, right? Um, what Mike did was when it was his turn to come up on stage and he was about to be asked on a panel the question about shoes to drop, Mike brought a toilet paper and he was going through one by one by one factors, which were the shoes to drop. And it was really hilarious. So it was entertaining and educational at the same time. And right after that, I couldn't forget that moment ever, right? <laughs> so it was brilliant move by Mike. And then eventually uh, we had a whole bunch of aspects, including the credit aspect and consumer aspect. Uh, so it was very memorable. So that brings up another point. We have the next one coming up. And Mike, you're coming, right? In the May. Yes, I'm there. Yes. I'm, I'm doing a uh, panel with Mike Green. Awesome. Uh, we're going to talk about probably whatever's on the front page of the New York Times, and then we'll make fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rob, you yeah. want to give more information about the upcoming May event of Hajjala? Yeah, and thanks, we'll Trent. Yeah, no, it's a, yeah, awesome. And then we'll go over to um, virologists. So, yeah, so Hajjala uh, Live is our premier conference. It's going to be hosted uh, May 4th to the 7th in Stanford, Connecticut. We've got quite the quite the panel, like quite the list of panelists. Everybody from Mike T and and Mike Green to Nancy Davis to Asset Capitalist Hugh Hendry uh, is a keynote speaker. Uh, the list is quite. Uh, who else we got? We got, I mean the list is quite. I'll post the the link up to, to the top in the nest for anybody who's interested. But uh, yeah, it's an amazing event. Uh, it's all kind of so that that all happens on the Friday. Is is a bunch of folks. Um, and, and, and speakers and what have you. And then 
on that e- that af- late afternoon and, and Saturday morning, you get to speak with all of our uh, hedge eye analysts and sector heads in their respective sectors and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a really great educational um, uh, weekend and really spearheaded by a, a ton of, of phenomenal conversations in between those sessions and uh, in the evening, you know, with, between uh, whether it be at the dinners or the cocktail hour, uh, and it's all kind of comes to a big build up, right, Mikey, at the uh, at the at the bash, the hedge eye bash on Saturday night, and yeah, I can I can tell you firsthand because I've been in those meetings that uh, not many people are, but um, it's going to be quite quite a quite a party. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun. I'm excited for you to to be there, and and um, yeah, it should be a really really good time. Good, great conversation. And where can great. people where can people find out more about this event, Rob? If somebody yeah, I'll put it up in the next trend. Um, you can go to hedgeyelive.com. Uh, is really uh, the the easiest way to do it. But I'll put it. I'll I'll, I'll go find a, a link, buddy, and I'll put it up there. But hedgeyelive dot com. So awesome. before the virologist comes on, yeah, yeah. I want I wanted to make a point that we've had not one question on COVID, and I stand by what I was saying last year is that there will be no COVID vaccinations this year. So and that's and and COVID is absolutely over, meaning the vaccinations for COVID is over. COVID isn't actually over, but, no, yeah, uh, but the flu, basically. for it are, I don't believe that they can ever come out with a, uh, a um, version of their uh, vaccination that will be in time to meet the prevalent strain. So by the time they come out, the strain will have already moved on and we're on to another one. So there's no purpose. Like there's just, in my opinion, there is not much purpose in getting uh, vaccinated. And there wasn't as of probably the middle of last year. Can I jump in now? Thanks, Michael, for that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was taking a bet behind the scenes of whether or not you were actually a girl yeah, uh, or a pro woman. Uh, you know, it's just you never know on the Internet. You never know. Yeah, right? so, yeah. <laughs> but really awesome that you, uh, that thanks, you are. Uh, so, so yeah, thanks for letting me out. Absolutely true. So, Michael, I just... Uh, two things that you had brought up. Um, you were discussing kind of like these uh, statistical numbers over um, population deficit in some countries. So um, that just prefaces a conversation. So have you heard of Ed Dowd? He's uh, runs finance tech and he brought up all these excess deaths in 2021. And we're looking at excess deaths of almost 25% in the workforce uh, age 25 to 49. And that's based on actuary data from life insurance policies. Those excess deaths. Okay. Yeah, it's stunning. It's okay. stunning. The numbers are stunning. They're absolutely stunning. And uh, I mean, COVID has had a huge impact, but uh, so I don't are non, I literally. So these I'm, are non-COVID related deaths. So we, teared, we teased out the data. So this is an area where... I'm kind of a little bit of an expert in, um, and I've never been on social media in three years for these reasons. So I've worked only in COVID and rare diseases and forecasting. And so we have like an uptick about 32% right now in uh, autoimmune and rare diseases that we haven't had before. And so, yes. Okay. I'm going to, okay. So I was just going to ask you a quick question. Uh, Pfizer picked up Segan today and Gilead's building out their cancer company essentially but um, Moderna has 17 mRNA pediatric vaccines that they're going to be replacing with standard egg-based vaccines, um, all of which are going to come out at least 
triple to quadruple the, the price of our regular, um, like generic pediatric vaccines as replacements. Um, with Elon Musk announcing that he is going to be helping production of vaccines with CureVac, um, even though their vaccine really didn't work out, even though he posted that he's had severe vaccine injury from his vaccines and his nephew got myocarditis from his vaccine. Um, I wanted to know what you thought about the space in terms of, and by the way, they are still mandating um, the COVID vaccines in all universities. And we've been fighting against that, but it's it's a, it's a tough road over there. And in California, um, you know, a lot of the schools are still mandating it uh, six months to, uh, you know, 18 year olds. So that being said, depending on what states you're in and, and um, what's happening with certain senators that are now probably going to become the head of the AMA, I wanted to know your thought process on where this goes with these fertility issues. I think Peter Zane said that in 10 years, China is going to have a catastrophic um, drop because of their fertility rates. We saw... Um, there's an investigation now going on in the UK and in other European countries due to excess deaths, but also with these huge um, fertility changes. And so that's going to affect the markets in ways that you were discussing and also having a workforce. If we've had this excess deaths in 25 to 49 year olds. What does that look like in, in terms of like layoffs and changing the market um, based on Ed Dowd's like Six Sigma event ideology of, of what's going to happen? You have all these players in there. The Pfizer's, the Gilead's, the Moderna's, they're, they have a, a HIV vaccine they're making. They just approved a cystic fibrosis a vaccine with mRNA. They're not stopping with this stuff and um, they're fast tracking everything. So it's just going to increase these these problems we're occurring. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of show you. That is a lot of I questions. And, <laughs> I and, and, and I approve I was of waiting it. A while. I was waiting a while. I feel, to get to I feel you. like. I I feel like that could be like its own space is all of it in, in well, and of itself. You could always invite uh, me and it make it could do it, be. Michael, but yeah, let's do yes. it. I think that'd so, be awesome. What is your uh, first name? You can call me Chaya. Chaya. Okay, Chaya. I want to tell all of our listeners I've just started following the closeted virologist. Oh my gosh. And uh and and she asks very pertinent questions. Um, I, I started trying to number some of these, and so you'll have to sure. help me because I'm sure that I forgot okay. them. China, pregnancy. Okay, good. Okay, so so far as uh, Moderna's uh, pipeline of vaccines, um, there is an incredibly high probability, in my view, that all of these vaccines are going to demonstrate what I call the purple eyeball and that they are going to run large studies as vaccines require, and they are going to find in the drug arm a purple eyeball. And a purple eyeball is my, my theme for a rare, unexplained medical problem, like my, myocarditis or whatever it is. But to me, it's a purple eyeball. And the probability of a purple eyeball in all their studies is astronomically high. Because you were setting off the toll-like receptor cascade of nasty and making yourself extremely uh, hypersensitive to single-strand, double-stranded DNA in your, uh, because you're injecting that. You're sensitizing yourself as if you have sepsis. Yes. That's kind of what you're doing here. And you're, and you're also so, going to cause, so we've seen a huge increase in ALS 
and in Parkinson's and uh, quick onset and quick death, which are people like are not aware of right now that that there's eight products right now that are getting approved for ALS just in 2022. And we're going to see a huge surge in ALS and and early onset um, disease. So this is so the, the everything is fast tracked regardless of they already know this stuff. They already had they already had all this data. You know, we had to FOIA it and get get it, you know, through Pfizer, the 75 years worth of data up front. So I I, I they're trying to go away from egg based vaccines, right? You're seeing all these egg farms and hen farms being burned down all over the US. They want to get away from egg based. So they're gonna be grandfathering in these pediatric mRNA vaccines. I, I don't know. I know you're more optimistic. Um, I've never seen anything like this in the history of I've, 25 years. I've worked in medicine and rare diseases and, and things, and I've never seen an approval process get sped through with the amount of issues that we're seeing. And they're pretty catastrophic. I got to tell you, like they're not even reported. Well, some of some of the issues, though. So the probability of having a purple eyeball event in the drug arm is very high. Now, most of the vaccinations that they're going after are not lethal or barely lethal, meaning that they would have to do an enormous study to show uh, hospitalization and mortality benefit, uh, like RSV, for instance. Yeah. Um, so that's why RSV has been really difficult to get approved at all. Many have tried. Uh, the problem is it's not actually a market because people don't die from right. it. It's a bad cold. Yeah. So, yes, it might be a convenience, but if you have a one out of 10,000 purple eyeball within 18 months of taking that vaccine, it's dead. The FDA can never approve it. So, so in my yeah. view, in my view, they, they won't. So they're, they're optimistic, they're hopeful, and we'll see the data. Look, they, have, they got a lot of money from COVID, and they're going to spend it. They're going to spend it on pushing this platform. But I believe the platform is stymied. Um, because, uh, and then that leads into the pregnancy issues and it's stymied by the mechanism of this, this platform and that you are, you are really revving up the immune system and it can cause bad effects like autoimmune problems and, and mostly all of it stems from autoimmune problems, inflammation in places that you don't want. Yeah. So yeah, pancreas, gallbladder, heart. So I don't know if you've listened to anything from Dr. Fleming or you heard me ever speak in any of, and we had one conversation with him about this, these turbo cancers and turbo amyloidosis, these prion disorders and the rates that those are going to go up. So we have to find solutions like to those phenomenons of prion disorder, which of course, you know, um, Amgen, you know, didn't do very well, or what's the other company with their, um, uh, with their dementia drug and Alzheimer drug, uh, you know, all those monoclonals and whatnot. So it seems like it, you know, the concern here is the pediatric vaccines for like measles, months and rubella, they're full steam ahead on that in an mRNA format and to get away from the egg based vaccine uh, format, because it's too hard to make it. And then they're looking at, um, obviously, um, polio. We have an outbreak of polio now, so there's a big warning around that. Um, but it, there seems to be a huge push. They just created the mRNA Nipah vaccine real quick because there was a small outbreak in Nipah. So that's getting that's in phase one. But um, they seem to be fast-tracking this in a different way, and it's moving under like uh, almost 
uh, you know, it's, it's going through a DOD actual like processing, if you know what I mean, where the right yeah. you know, Marianne Gruber and, and the other guy and about five other of the top FDA people between them, they had like probably 200 years of vaccine approval experience and they all jumped off because they were being pushed on the original booster, which was how many billions that we paid in taxes to acquire that. And nobody's, nobody's taking the bivalent and those adverse event rates are so high and they didn't stop it. They didn't even stop. I mean, you know, in January Pfizer had to make a statement about strokes and that whole uh, project Veritas leak that came out. And I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody like you comes in and says this publicly and saves the day. Um, but they keep pushing forward. Well, the data is going to show it. Don't worry. They're going to, for MMR, measles, mumps, rubella. For This is a, a vaccine that like every kid gets when they go to camp and it's mandated to go into right. public schools. Um, the, you're going to have to do a, a very, very large study. And the probability of many purple eyeballs is extremely okay. high. So I think when they get the full data set, they're going to say, you know, risk versus benefit. If the risk is higher and the benefit is the same, that's it. It doesn't get approved. Yeah. So I'll send you something something on the back channel. So it'll explain to you. They're going to look at it from a manufacturing uh, issue. That's why with Elon coming in and wanting to do what he's doing is micro micro production of mRNAs, which is basically like you can quickly produce vaccines in a state, reduce the amount of like egg based and all that factory flow and all that. They're going to find a way to create it where it's going to be more, you know, easy to produce and economical in one way. And so they're going to use that as I think the vehicle. That's my biggest concern. But I'm going to pray that you're right. Um, They have to do big studies. Yeah. They have to do big studies, so and they, and they will, and and we'll see what the data looks like. I I'm, I I would be bet I will be betting on a purple eyeball. Oh yeah, yeah, so, we, we know those. That's for sure. And 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 I've done this many you know many many times before over the past twenty years, where I can see a high risk situation that is not well understood. The purple eyeball comes out and it never gets approved. Right. So, right. And what are your thoughts about Pfizer picking up Segan today? Um, Pfizer is like uh, one of the many uh, pharma companies that has a patent cliff issue. Yeah. Um, and they, they this is simply to replace revenue that they will lose. Uh, I'm not sure if this will be an MPV positive project for okay. them. Uh, most of the acquisitions by pharma uh, have not been. Right. But, but I, saw, I saw numbers of $10 billion for $7 billion. Mm. F- 44 yeah, yeah, yes. or something like that, where it's negative M thirty percent MPV. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you have to remember that. Think of the people who are doing these deals. Often, um, yeah, it's it's biz dev guys inside of the mm-hmm. company, and you know they, um, it's, it's it, they're in a difficult situation because they're trying to find diamonds, right? Uh, and and Think of it like this. They have to find diamonds before all the hedge fund guys do. Got it. And they're only buying, for the most part, pretty mature companies on these big acquisitions. And, you know, like, for instance, Clay at S-Gen and the Baker brothers put this whole thing together. Like, I've known them for 20 years. <laughs> and and so I, I, like, 
it's really hard for these these business development people to get it right uh, and find an MPV positive project that no one else sees and isn't reflected in the stock price. Right. It happens sometimes. Like I think I think the deal that Amgen just did for Horizon, I think that they're going to probably make an awful lot of money off of that one. And the reason for that is that uh, their drug to treat uh, blindness associated with thyroid disorder is not approved or even recognized that it's a disease in Europe. And they will very likely grease the wheels over there to get it recognized. And that's going to be a $3 billion perpetuity on that alone. And that justifies the price that they paid, more than justifies it. So I think in that case, they'll make money on it. Are you aware that a 35% um, increase in Graves' disease, which is the thyroid eye disorder that you mentioned, is one of the side effects of the mRNA vaccine? I, uh, I'm not. I'm not aware that is the case. Um, but you are getting very close to a purple eyeball. Oh, I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, we're gonna move. Yeah. We're, no, we're it's just interesting because I feel like we could. No, but it's awesome. It's, it's awesome. I, like, I, I, I want to have. I would love to have a space with you. So, and and ideally, you and um, our health policy uh, sector head Emily Evans. Um, I think it would be a fantastic conversation. Maybe we can bring Mike T back and. Have it focused just on on that aspect of, of things, but uh, uh, you bring in data, um, spitting spitting out data rather than narratives and all that other nonsense. Um, I love it. I, that is the hedge I way. That is the Mike T way. We we love that. So thank you, um, thank you for jumping in. Um, yeah, thank you so very much. So I really appreciate it, <clears throat> George. We're gonna we're gonna go to your question and then. We've been at this for like two hours and fifteen minutes. So uh, kids are back from gymnastics. Gonna go have some dinner. Uh, so we'll wrap up with uh, with with the one, the only, the George Syracuse. Uh, no pressure, my man. Can you hear me? Uh, oh, yes. yeah, we can hear you loud. And All clear. right, good. Yeah, Mike, I just want to let you know those cigars. I got to send them in the mail, but I bought them in October, and uh, you know, I kind of had Max in mind, the kind of thing that I would steal from my dad when I was his age. So keep that in mind. This is my question: the uh, bank term funding program. Obviously, we saw everyone today kind of treat it like it's QE. Has anyone that you follow or talk to done a solid analysis yet on what participation will or may be like in the bank term funding program and if it will or will not be a de facto QE? I think we covered this a little bit earlier and that and that they're only going to use it if they have to use it. Because nobody wants to be right. known that you're using it, because it will become public who's using it eventually. Right, and George, the approximate numbers we landed up with were, you know, there's a hole right now of about six twenty billion as of twelve thirty one. It kind of slightly reduced with the rally in some of these securities uh, in Q one with the easing. So assuming about you know thirty forty percent need or offtake, um, if any, right? Worst case scenario. So just talking about scenarios then that would come out to approximately 200 to 40 billion that too if required so the sensitivity analysis would say anywhere between 50 to 200 or 250 billion would be the uptake of that credit because keep in mind it's a loan it's a credit yeah i, I kind of have the same QE because you're just you're just swapping duration correct yeah yeah mike clarified uh, i asked a question earlier about whether it would be some sort of a proxy QE, he explained how it's not a QE. 
Yeah, I came to the same conclusion. I just wanted to check my sanity based on today's price action. Cool. Uh, well, if you noticed, um, Jim Kramer did say buy. So, <laughs> right? So, little Inverse bit Kramer has spoken, and therefore it is true. So, that's a strong way to finish. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we can't end on that, but hey, it is what it is. Uh, Mikey T, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, the Head Dot Nation certainly loves uh, speaking with you, engaging with you, and, and as do I and, and everybody else. So I uh, can't, can't thank you enough, my man. Looking forward to seeing you in uh, about a month, I guess, at this point. Uh, no, I guess two months, uh, May, May 4th weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if you, if you enjoyed what you heard tonight, you can uh, go check out HedgeEye.com. we got a, a lot of phenomenal investment research uh, out there, as well as uh, uh, Simplify. Simplify is the ETF. Uh, Mike T. runs Pink, and which is the, their healthcare ETF. Uh, but they've got a lot of other uh, phenomenal ETFs that Simplify as well. But uh, Mike T., appreciate it, sir. Thank you so uh, much. Have a wonderful we'll night. And, we'll, uh, we'll, and good luck. Uh, I... <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll be shocked if this works out uh, for asset values well, and um, so. And for many, I hope it does. But I, I just don't understand how it's gonna go that way. So hey, we got we got our usual programming, which is weekly notebook review on Wednesday. So that's where we kind of review, uh, you know, midweek kind of what's happening from weekend work to what's what what we should be preparing for next week, next month, next quarter. Um, sometimes Mike T drops in. Oftentimes he's in listen only mode, even though everybody wants him to come up, right, Mikey? Uh, I know it's yeah. actually it's actually an issue because sometimes I really just want to listen. I'm yeah, gonna have to exactly. start another like phantom account so that I can <laughs> listen because then they all make me talk, and I'm like, God, I want. It's hard to learn when I'm talking. So I hear you, man. Well, appreciate it, guys. Uh, thank you all for listening in. Thank you all for uh, your great commentary and, and questions. We will uh, we'll see you soon. See you Wednesday. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com slash terms of service. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research and and check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye.